3: Consider the sight, sounds, and smells of your typical morning. Maybe it's seeing the orange hues of sunrise, or maybe hearing the melodies of birds, or taking in the aroma of freshly brewed coffee. It may feel like your sensory world is full of activity, but you're missing out on things. If you had infrared vision, for example, you could actually see the heat emanating from the coffee pot. And imagine being an animal with
4: heightened olfactory senses. When I think about how my dog smells, I see the neighborhood around me, the streets around me, in a very different way. And when I think about a seabird um, smelling across the, its way across the ocean, the ocean doesn't seem so featureless to me anymore.
1: The world is filled with sensory messages that humans can't pick up, but some animals can. What is it like to be them? What is it like to have infrared vision or the ability to detect the Earth's magnetic field? We'll explore the world as other animals sense it. I'm Molly Bentley.
3: I'm Seth Shostak, and this is Big Picture Science. From elephants that detect low-frequency rumbles to dolphins that echolocate to bees that see ultraviolet light, we have an extended conversation with science writer Ed Young, who will help us in coming to our animal senses. You may know this journalist from his extensive, incisive reporting about COVID.
4: I'm Ed Yong, and I'm a science writer currently at The Atlantic.
3: His writing about the pandemic earned him a Pulitzer Prize in explanatory journalism. But for now, Ed Yong has turned his attention away from considering the behavior of invisible menaces to making visible the worlds of larger creatures that
1: share our planet. His new book about animals... Is called An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. And I think of it as an opportunity to consider the questions of who are we here with and what is it like to be an animal. And to get at that, Seth, Ed begins his book with a thought experiment. Are you ready to engage your imagination? You betcha. Okay, here it is.
4: An immense world starts with this uh, invitation to imagine a room in which there's an elephant, a robin, um, a rattlesnake, a spider, and a human.
3: Wow, that sounds like the beginning of a shaggy dog story. (laughs) Well, at least not too many of them are serious predators, except for the rattlesnake.
4: All these animals are sharing the same physical space, but they're all having a radically different experience of that space. The elephant can hear low frequencies that it can also make and that uh, are inaudible to the human. Um, The rattlesnake can sense the body heat of the elephant and the human uh, when neither of the other animals can. can. Um, The robin can sense the uh, magnetic field of the earth um, and use that to guide its long migrations. So each creature has its own particular sensory bubble, its own set of sights and smells and sounds and other weird stimuli that it has access to, but that other creatures might not. Um, And that sensory bubble is called the Umwelt. Um, It's the the anchoring concept behind this book. It, It means that each creature is only perceiving a thin sliver of the fullness of reality.
1: So let's talk briefly about the different kind of stimuli Ed mentioned here because we'll hear about them throughout the show. The elephant can hear low-frequency sounds, he says. Seth, remind us what low versus high frequency is. Are those different kinds of sound waves?
3: Well, they're not actually different kinds of sound waves. They're just, if you will, the pitch of the sound waves, right? Hitting the very lowest note on a piano versus hitting the very highest note, but they're still both piano notes.
1: How do the wavelengths themselves compare?
3: Well, the low frequency sounds have very long wavelengths. It's sort of like the rolling ocean, but the high-frequency waves have you know, much shorter wavelengths.
1: Another form of stimulus comes as light, such as ultraviolet and infrared, and those are waves too, right, Seth?
3: They most definitely are. They're what are called electromagnetic waves, and that includes light. For example, the difference between ultraviolet and infrared, I mean, they're both light. They're both wave phenomena, but they differ in frequency, in wavelength, if you, if you will. Infrared is down deep in the uh, red, and ultraviolet is much shorter wavelengths up in the blue.
1: And he said that the robin senses the magnetic field, which is just incredible. A quick picture of what the Earth's magnetic field is?
3: Yes, the Earth's magnetic field arises because the Earth, when you go down deep into it, is mostly iron and nickel. And it's kind of sloshing around there, rotating. That produces a magnetic field. It's just like a magnet you might have had as a kid. The Earth is a giant magnet. If you have a compass, you know that's true. And the birds have a kind of built-in compass. They can sense that magnetic field and know which way they should fly.
1: Amazing. Well, we'll hear more about how animals can sense their world in our conversation with Ed Young, who begins by saying more about that German word you heard to describe a sensory bubble, Umwelt.
4: So it just means environment in German. Um, but the man who popularized it, a zoologist named Jakob von Uexkull, he used it in a very specific way, not to refer to a creature's physical surroundings. So my my Umwelt is not the the closet I'm sitting in now or the desk I'm touching. It's the perceptual environment. It's the part of the world that the animal can perceive. And the crucial point here is that it varies considerably from one species to the next, from one individual to the next. So von wrote about the tick, for example, a little blood-sucking creature whose umwelt consists of the heat of blood or the smell of human skin or the touch of hair. It doesn't have access to the rich sights that we can see or the frequencies that we can hear. In the same way, we don't have access to the electric fields that a shark can sense or the magnetic fields that a sea turtle can sense. Each creature is limited and constrained in its own way.
1: And when we take the time to appreciate how other animals, and I should say non-human animals, we are animals too, perceive their worlds these worlds can open up to us. And uh, recently, Ed, we finished an episode about the James Webb Space Telescope. And Mm -hmm. astronomers were giddy with their descriptions of how the cosmos looks through infrared cameras. And when they look through infrared cameras, whole worlds open up, worlds that that are obscured in visible light. Well, the eyes of some animals are like infrared cameras. They're right here on Earth. Which animals perceive the world in infrared? And when we appreciate that, what kind of new worlds open up to us? So for animals,
4: infrared radiation is is really about heat. Hot objects give off infrared, uh, and some creatures can detect that. so, for example, um, there are beetles that can detect fire. They sense forest fires from long distances and they head towards the flames because a charred forest provides them with a great place in which to lay their eggs and for their young to grow up without predators or with defend- weakened defences from trees. Um, these beetles are, are incredible in their ability to detect forest fires from huge distances. Um, they They've been seen traveling over uh, miles towards uh, the source of a fire. Um, they've sometimes ended up in like uh, barbecues or uh, old sports events where people were smoking cigarettes outside. Um, there are also uh, a lot of predators and parasites that um, are sensitive to infrared because it's a signature of warm-blooded prey. So, ticks and vampire bats and mosquitoes can detect body heat too. But the masters of this are um, pit wipers, so rattlesnakes and their kin. They have a pair of sensitive pits on the tips of their faces um, that can detect very tiny changes in temperature. So a rattlesnake um, sitting on your head can detect the body heat of a mouse sitting at the tip of your arm.
1: Let's say more about what they're detecting, because you said when they're detecting infrared, they're detecting heat. Um, Now, infrared is a wavelength that's slightly longer than the visible wavelength. Are they seeing that infrared in the case of beetles and snakes? Are they sort of seeing like a shimmer around things? I mean, we can perceive forest fires. We can feel the heat of forest fires. Or do they feel it? Or do you not distinguish between the two when it comes to other animals? really really
4: good question um so you know the the um, body heat of a mouse is going to um emit uh, infrared radiation which hits a membrane at the back of the rattlesnake's pit that membrane absorbs that radiation and then uh, transforms it into an uh, electrical signal which goes towards the snake's brain. Now, along that way, it combines with um, neural signals coming from the snake's eyes. So there there is a question among people who study these animals about what the snake is actually experiencing. Is its infrared sense just... Uh, simply an an extension of its vision, you know, is is infrared essentially like another colour to the snake? Is it seeing the body heat of the of the prey that it's stalking? Um, we we don't really know. It's one of the challenges of of understanding the senses of other animals. It's that it is very difficult to understand the subjective experiences of, of these creatures, even if you know what the receptors are, if you know all the neural pathways going from the sense organs to the brain. Um, so, you know, what one problem here is that um, the infrared sense that a snake has is going to be incredibly coarse, like the resolution is going to be very low. Often um, in nature documentaries, when people try to visualize this sense, they just have an infrared camera, right? So you see a picture of a moving mouse that's colored red to violet, depending on its temperature. Um, but it's always a sharp image. You know, you always get the, the, the outline of the mouse. And that's unlikely to be what the snake gets. And when people have modeled this infrared sense, you know, if a mouse is running a log, all you see is like a blob of... Moving against this um cooler background. Um, so how that combines with vision, um, which will offer more well, much higher resolution information about the world, is unclear. and And obviously, we know that these snakes can hunt in complete darkness. So it's not like they need vision for the infrared sense to work. Um, So, yeah, I I think it opens up a lot of important questions about the senses. You know, it shows that we we struggle to understand subjectively what the experiences of these animals are like. It also raises questions about how many senses are there, right? So is the infrared sense a special extra thing that the snake has? Is it an extension of vision, part of vision? We don't know.
1: Sticking with the, the category of vision, keeping that loose, but if we go to the other side of visible light, The shorter waves are the ultraviolet waves, and fish and birds can detect ultraviolet. And could you give us an example of what they can perceive in the ultraviolet?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So it turns out that the majority of animals that can see can also see in ultraviolet. And for the longest time, um, scientists were arguing that this was a very rare ability that allowed animals to trade secret messages. Um, Well, it it turns out that most things can see this color and, and we are exceptions in being unable to. Um, If we could see ultraviolet, much of the world, I think, would look very different. So flowers have a lot of ultraviolet patterns on them that are meant to uh, attract insects which can see this color. Um, A lot of flowers under ultraviolet have like distinctive patterns like bullseyes and arrows. Um, A sunflower looks yellow to us but has an ultraviolet bullseye in the middle of it. Um, A lot of birds have distinctive ultraviolet patterns on their their plumage. Um, The so-called blue tit is really more of an ultraviolet tit. And Uh, There are many cases in which males and females of bird species look identical to us. They're very difficult to tell apart, but they're probably very easy to tell apart to each other's eyes because there are differences in the ways um, in which males and females reflect ultraviolet from their feathers.
1: Just to follow up on that, in our sensory world perception, we might see blue fish or blue birds, but they look yellow to each other. And Ed, why is that? Why would that evolve? Does the ability to sense ultraviolet in these cases evolve solely for the purposes of reproduction?
4: Oh, no, I don't think so. You know, I think there are lots of ultraviolet signals in the world that are useful for animals to sense. Um, Underwater, there's often a kind of ambient ultraviolet fog and if you have an eye that can see ultraviolet it's easier to spot the contrast of small prey items so it can be useful for finding food or you know reindeer looking for lichen um, on against a snowy landscape can find their food more easily because again like snow reflects a lot of ultraviolet you know flowers have these ultraviolet patterns um, that i told you about a lot of that uh, originated to attract insects like if you look at the flowers that exist in the world and you try and ask like what kind of eye would be best at discriminating between the colors of all these blooms what you get is an eye that's very much like a bee eye and that's maximally sent that has three kinds of color sensing cells that are maximally sensitive to green blue and ultraviolet and the bee eye came first. So the insects were, were there uh, before the flowers evolved their colours, which means that flowers evolved colours that ideally tickle the eyes of insects. So here again is an is an example in which um, seeing these colours is about um, something else. It's not just about finding mates, it's about finding um, sources of food. Um, you know, the, the truth is that there's lots of things that you could put this kind of color vision to and and in fact, um, as I said, ultraviolet vision is actually very, very common. um we are unusual in not having it and indeed having having lost it, you know if you if you work back the evolutionary tree, um, you know, the ancestors of birds, um, you know, most fish likely had ultraviolet vision too. They they had um, what we call tetrachromatic vision. So so humans have three kinds of color-sensing cells. That gives us access to the, the full spectrum of colors that we can see. A lot of animals, uh, a lot of birds, a lot of fish, a lot of insects have tetrachromatic vision. They have a fourth kind of color-sensing cell, which means that not only can they see colors we can't see, including ultraviolet, but they have a whole dimension of colors that we can't see. It's not just ultraviolet. It's ultraviolet combined with other colors to create um, variations of like ultraviolet purple. Um, you know, birds have access to this. A, a lot of animals have access to this. And it it, it sort of blows my mind to think that there is this um, entire realm of colors that we don't have access to.
1: And to be clear on the point that you made about the bees having developed their form of vision before the flowers, it means the flowers evolved in order to, like, I don't want to say seduce the bees, but they evolved their colors to match the bees' perception of flowers. That's a little clunky. Yeah, and,
4: and I think that's a that's a crucial point because um, It's very easy to think of the senses as these passive receptacles for information. You know, I'm sitting here, light is entering my eyes, uh, pressure waves in the air are moving into my ears, um, molecules are drifting into my nose. It, It feels like I'm not doing very much other than receiving them. But the senses through their mere existence play a very active role in shaping the world around us. You know, as I write in the book, um, the, the beauty isn't just in the eye of the beholder, it, it arises because of that eye. The characteristics of animal eyes Define the nature of animal signals and plant signals. It it influences the form in which colours and patterns take in the world, and similarly, the hearing of animals influences the kinds of songs and calls that animals create. So, a lot of the things that we find beautiful, you know, the songs of birds, the colours of flowers, you um, know, didn't just arise in a vacuum. They arose because of the umwelten of the creatures who are meant to be on the receiving end of these messages.
3: When we continue our conversation with science writer Ed Young, we discuss why considering the lives of animals can be framed as an ethical act and also hear about his reverence for his dog, who, like other canines, is a super sniffer.
4: I can only begin to imagine what it's like to waft this continuous conveyor belt of smell into your nose, what it's like to explore with your nose in the same way that I might with my eyes.
1: We are coming to our animal senses on Big Picture Science.
3: You know, Molly, before we continue your discussion with Ed Young, I'd like to say something about what he said about color vision and other animals. Uh, I happen to have a long-standing interest in this because of my interest in photography. As he said, we have trichromaticity uh, vision. In other words, we have three color receptors, very crudely, red, green, and blue. Okay, red, green, and blue. Right. Now, if I hold up a banana in front of you, you say, oh, that's not red, that's not green, that's not blue, it's yellow, Well, but your eye doesn't have any yellow color receptors, right? So how is it that it can determine that that banana is yellow? Well, what it is is that yellow is, you know, the result of adding red to green, right? Then you get yellow, and that's the work of your brain.
1: And yet what Ed said is that most animals, or at least humans have tricolor vision. Our ancestors had tetrachromatic vision, so that's four. Why would we lose one of those photoreceptors, Seth? What would the advantage be? I mean, it seems like the world would be more fun if we had tetrachromatic vision and not tricolor vision.
3: Well, I don't want to disappoint you, Molly, but nature isn't interested in whether your life is fun. Nature's only interested in that your life is long enough to allow you to reproduce. Oh,
1: okay, okay, but then how does this extend? What advantages does it give us to have one less photoreceptor?
3: yeah I can't think of any advantage actually uh, it, it It gives us the advantage that, for example, Color film only needs to have three, three layers, and technicolor cameras only had to have three rolls of film running all at the same time. I mean, there's that advantage. You wouldn't have to have that fourth one. But honestly, I, I, I don't know why you'd lose that ability. No. But I don't
1: think evolution was anticipating the birth of color film, uh, the arrival of color film. Well, talking about photoreceptors reminds me of an interview from our episode about color. We did many months ago when Rob DeSalle, a curator from the American Museum of Natural History, during its exhibition about color perception, introduced us to the incredible color sensing ability of mantis shrimp. And I just wanted to share that short exchange.
3: Okay, I'm all ears. I mean, I'm all eyes.
1: Can we talk mantis shrimp? Yes. <laughs> the reason I want to talk about these animals is because they have many photoreceptors. We have three for red, green, and blue, and they have a dozen photoreceptors? A
0: dozen, if not more. Um, and these, these dozen or so photoreceptors have been shown to detect different wavelengths of light or to be optimized on different wavelengths of light. And so a mana shrimp has the capacity to detect uh, many, many different wavelengths of light, and hence the uh, calculations or the computation of, of what those wavelengths mean to the mantis shrimp are uh, more complex than, say, what our brains do when we compute the information from our retinas.
1: Is the mantis shrimp um, particularly colorful? I think I saw a photo of it, and it's actually quite colorful, right?
0: Mantis shrimps are incredibly colorful. Um, They're uh, just one of the more interesting organisms to look at (laughs) with respect to color. They're just amazing reds, greens, blues, just an amazing range of reds and blues and greens too. And uh, the different kinds of photoreceptor molecules that they have in their eyes are probably tuned to detecting these different colors for recognition of different species, but also perhaps very important in mating.
1: So is the world of the mantis shrimp far more colorful than ours?
0: That's a great question. The The world of a mantis shrimp could be far more colorful than ours. We don't know yet. The best I think we can say right now is that they have the capacity to detect a vast, vast array of different colors much more precisely than we can detect colors.
3: Okay, the mantis shrimp 12 different kinds of color receptors. I I, I wish I had that kind of uh, color discrimination.
1: The colorful world of the mantis shrimp is an example of what Ed Yong described as the umwelt or a sensory bubble that an animal lives in. And Rob DeSalle highlights something that Ed talks about, which is we are uncertain about exactly how other animals perceive their world. We don't really know what it's like to be them, but Mr. Young says it's worth using the tools of science and our imaginations to find out.
3: Molly's conversation continues with science writer, Ed Young, author of An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us.
1: Ed, I appreciated, and I think your readers will appreciate that you devoted this book to animals. and. You didn't feel it necessary, as so many articles and books do, to discuss animals as a way of discussing ourselves. What makes us human? And it always breaks my heart when a justification for talking about animals is presented as though they don't have a right to be discussed on their own. And can you say more about why that focus is important to you?
4: Yeah, I think because I've always cared about them in their own right, I, I just find them inherently fascinating. And you know, there are there are ways I could have written this book that were not that. Uh, I said up front that a lot of the time people study animal senses um, for for two kinds of reasons. One, uh, as inspiration for technology, um, you know, to, that we can mimic the senses of animals to better develop. Our own tools, Um, you know, the the U.S. Navy funded a huge amount of what we know about dolphin sonar so that they could improve military sonar, for example. Also, a lot of scientists study animal senses as proxies for our own senses. You know, so things like flies and worms become model organisms, but so do things like electric fish or owls, Um, you know, or or, uh, but but I I think both of these are, are reasonable rationales, but they're not, neither of them are things that I'm interested in. I'm interested in animals um, at for, in their own right um, because I think that the details of their lives and their experiences are just spectacular I think they give us two things. I think, firstly, we understand the animals themselves in, in a in a better and more profound way. Um, you know, I have had the loveliest comments from people who've said that they've read An Immense World and it's changed the way they think about their pets, like their dogs or their cats. But also, you know, they... they Pause a little more when they look at a spider building a cobweb in the corner of their room, or um, you know, a a a jay or a, a blackbird flying overhead. Um, it, it just makes them think harder about what the lives of these um, often everyday and mundane creatures might must be like. I think also understanding their Umwelten Changes our appreciation of the world around us. You know, it offers us flickers of the magical and the mundane. Um, so when I think about how my dog smells, I see the neighborhood around me, the, the streets, um, uh, the streets around me in a very different way. And when I think about a seabird, um, smelling across the, its way across the ocean, um, the the ocean doesn't seem so featureless to me anymore. Um, when I think about Insects sending vibrational messages through plants. Um, gardens and fields seem full of um, activity and, and messages that I can't perceive. And I think all of that is, is wondrous. You know, it, it changes my appreciation, it deepens my appreciation of the world around me
1: it seems to be an ethical act or a moral act to this thought experiment and considering the world from other animals points of view because we share the earth with them and as uh, the ecologist carl safina says when people say well we should make room for animals he will correct them and say no you should leave room for other animals because they were here before us and we are sharing this planet. And I wonder if our resistance to taking time to fully appreciate the lives of other animals, that keeps us from leaving room for them and making greater effort to protect them and also create a a moral defense for their right to exist.
4: I I think that's true. Um, You know, I, I think that I don't think people will want to protect things that they don't care about. You know, I, I think caring about is that necessary first step. So an immense world is um, is sort of a clarion call to... Um, Care for the creatures around us, but it, it's it's also it also hopefully gives readers a reason to care. And the final chapter in the book is about um, sensory pollution. It's about how we have flooded the darkness with light and the quiet with noise, in ways that harm the um, the animals around us. I think that that kind of pollution is also the pollution of disconnection. It, it severs it stops us from appreciating nature' it's too much there's too much noise. Um, you can't hear the songs of birds around you or you drive them away. if there's too much light, you drive away creatures that um, that would thrive otherwise in the dark. I think all of that creates environments where there's less nature around us, where it feels more distant and more remote and therefore less close to our hearts.
1: One of the exercises you're engaged in, of course, in this book is what is it like to be an animal? And was there one animal that you felt you came very close to getting it? You felt like you could feel it. What it was like to perceive the world the way that that animal was perceiving the world. Oof, um that's an interesting. Well, I I mean,
4: it's it's hard, right? But it's hard because... I think... The the argument I've made throughout the book is that there's always going to be this gap between where we are and where they are. And, you know, I've I've done so much research in this. I've spent a huge amount of time thinking about about the experiences of other creatures. But I, I know that I'm not going to be anywhere close. So, you know, I my my dog, for example, is, is the creature who I spend the most amount of time in the presence of and thinking about. That's typo.
1: Right. That's typo.
4: That's right. Typo. Uh, He's a corgi. He's a... Bundle of joy, um, you know. I think a lot about. Uh, I've written a lot in the book about the uh, olfactory world of dogs, uh, how they live in a world of smell. I watch Typo smelling his way around the neighborhood. I think intensely about what he experiences, but I also don't know. You know, I, I, I don't. I, I can only begin to imagine what it's like to waft this continuous conveyor belt of smell into your nose. What it's like to explore with your nose in the same way that I might with my eyes. Um, um, you know, to 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 pick up from just a walk around one, uh, like a few meters of streets, like the sense of other dogs that have walked by before that, you know, the 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 smell of new flowers bursting out of the ground. Um, all of these things he gets and I don't. And, you know, try as I might, I feel like I'm a very long way from understanding that. And that's with a, a very familiar animal, right? Like it, it, the challenge is even greater when thinking about an echolocating bat or a, a fish creating its own electric fields or a, a robin um, sensing the magnetic field of the earth or a rattlesnake sensing the infrared the infrared radiation given off by its prey. Um, it's all very, very challenging, you know, even even for vision, the sense we're most familiar with, thinking about how other animals see, is very hard.
1: Mm-hmm. That's as you said. That's why in those documentaries we use the the night vision goggles to give a sense of you know what a, what a snake might see. If you could have twenty four hours or some interlude where you could ask typo some questions and say that he could respond to you or another animal. What animal and what would the questions be if you wanted to sit down and say, okay, I want to straighten this out. I'm really trying to understand how you perceive the world. What questions would you ask them?
4: Oh, um, so so type is a good one because he's obviously close to my heart, right? Like I think everyone wants to know how their, their pets um, think and experience. Um, I'd probably choose something like... Um, so I'll give you two possible answers, right? In the book I write about the great whales, like blue whales, um the 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 giants. Um that produce very low frequency sounds and have hearing to match and there's always been this idea that whale um, those infrasounds that whales create can travel across oceanic distances. so certainly humans have recorded whales singing off the coast of Europe from America. Um, people have argued that whales might be able to hear and communicate with each other over massive distances too and to use their um, their infrasound a little bit like echolocation to sort of map the topography of the ocean to help them navigate. Those things are incredibly hard to study. Um, You know, giant whales are are not amenable to experiments. Their their behavior is very difficult to watch. So a lot of these questions are not only unknown, but possibly unknowable. So if I want to, you know, if I actually magically have the ability to talk to animals and ask them what they experience, I I would ask a, a whale that, you know, Does a whale does a whale that's swimming apparently by itself in the ocean feel like it's part of a group? You know, can it hear other whales from tens of thousands um, of of kilometres away? Um, you know, does it does it feel for for an old whale that once heard over longer distances before humans filled the oceans with the sounds of ships? Does the world feel like a lonelier place because it can you can't hear over the same distances it once did? Um, you know, these are all the the kinds of questions that I think actually are, are almost impossible to answer and that I would love to have answers to. Um, and then finally, the, the other example I wanted to give was was an octopus. Um, and uh, An octopus has uh, pretty good eyes um, in, in its head, but much of its nervous system exists in its arms, um, whose suckers com- seem to combine taste and touch in- into likely a single sense. What is that like? Um, You know, what is it like to exist in a body um, where your limbs function almost autonomously, you know, where they have an agency of their own? Um, Does the octopus have one sort of cohesive umbelt or, or two separate ones one in the head and one in the arms you know what what does that feel like what what is it what is it octopuses are famously intelligent but what how does intelligence manifest in a creature whose senses whose body whose um, nervous system are so radically different to ours these are the questions that fascinate me
3: i think uh, molly ed is addressing or asking a question that i'm sure all of us have asked right What's it like to be some other animal in the world? And uh, we would all like to know that. And as he put it, that might be a question for which we will never have an answer.
1: He has this lovely phrase that the exploration of the sensory worlds of other animals, the umwelten, offers us flickers of the magical and the mundane. I really like that. Hey, Seth, if you could communicate with another... Animal, and it could understand you and communicate back, and you could ask it some questions. What animal would you pick?
3: Jeepers. That's a good question for which I don't have a good answer. But I suppose it would be I don't know, I guess it would be one of the primates because they're very like us, but they're not entirely like us. So I'd be interested in their point of view. I could relate to it perhaps better. Up next, you think you're smart because you can play a xylophone or host a podcast. But should we use that as the definition of intelligence for other creatures? Also, have you ever had an eye-to-eye epiphany with another animal?
1: This episode, a conversation with science writer Ed Yong finds us coming to our animal senses on Big Picture Science.
2: stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.
3: We continue our conversation about the sensory perceptions of animals with science writer Ed Yong.
1: This part of the conversation gets into the definition of intelligence as it extends to other animals, and Seth, what is the definition of intelligence
3: well I, I, I think it's set by the people who consider themselves intelligent there is no you know there is no real. Definition of intelligence, although what you will hear biologists occasionally say is it's a kind of a flexibility in behavior, an adaptability, an ability to take on new situations and deal with them rather than just following the programming that came with your DNA.
1: Mm-hmm. So it's not being able to do a particular set of skills. It's being able to be adaptive to different situations. Well, surely astronomers and astrobiologists who are looking for intelligent life elsewhere in the universe have a definition of intelligence because they're looking for intelligence, so they need to know what they're looking for, right? What's the definition of intelligence in, the, in SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence?
3: Well, it's a very operational definition. In other words, it's just practical. Uh, And it is, if you can build a radio transmitter or a powerful laser or something else that we can see from light years away, then you're intelligent. We grant you intelligence.
1: It's a pretty narrow definition of intelligence, isn't it?
3: Well, it is. It doesn't say anything about their ability to write poetry or anything like that. It's true. But... It's a practical value. That's all it is. It isn't a real definition of intelligence. Now, mind you, there is something called the encephalization quotient that's applied to animals. You essentially weigh their brain and weigh their entire body, and you take the ratio. And the larger the fraction of their body that's brain the more intelligence they're presumed to have. And that seems to work. I mean, you make a plot of encephalization quotient versus different kinds of of animals. You find the ones that you at least consider intelligent tend to have the higher encephalization quotient.
1: And that is a definition of intelligence that humans came up with. And it this this kicks off this last bit of conversation with Ed Young because I started it by saying to Ed that it seems As though we don't really know what animal intelligence is, we only have an idea of what human intelligence is.
4: Absolutely, I completely agree with that, and and also, we have a very particular idea of human intelligence, right? So we um, we th- we talk about like using tools, um, we we think about language, and and a lot of a lot of the ways in which we conceive of intelligence is visual. Um, you know, we there's this famous test, the mirror self recognition test, like whether an animal can recognize its own reflection in a in a mirror as an indicator of like self awareness, but a mirror is irrelevant to creatures that exist in a world of smell, for example um you know to a dog or to an elephant um you know who who cares whether you can see something in in a mirror or not um you know same same thing for an octopus um so in, in a lot of ways we are we're judging animals on our terms and and often misleadingly um you know, so th- th- in terms of vision, for example, um, I write about jumping spiders in um, the book. And on the holiday I was just on, I um, saw a ton of jumping spiders and had this one wonderful moment where I was trying to take a, a close-up photo of one. And it just turned and looked straight at me. And I write this in the book, right? We we there's something about an animal turning and looking at you that makes it feel intelligent. Like we we equate active gaze with an active mind. And, and jumping spiders actually are pretty smart for for spiders. But you know the the reason that creatures turn to look at things around them um, is often that they have two eyes that facing forward, like ours. Um, a lot of jumping spiders have that. But if you have eyes that are on the side of your head that allow you to have a panoramic view of the world, you don't need to turn and look at stuff. You can side-eye things. You can stand completely still and watch things coming ar- ar- at you from all directions. And that's what a lot of animals have. And, and in, in that case... Like gaze doesn't indicate anything. You know, an active gaze is something that only that arises because you have a limited visual field. So, yeah, there's loads of examples, I think, of us assuming that animals are doing specific things because of the limitations and nature of our own senses. And and often we, we really misconstrue what they're actually doing because of that.
1: I wonder if we could talk about the cases in which the gaze may mean something. And it's kind of incredible that you brought that up because I was thinking what I wanted to share with you is a profound encounter that I had with an animal recently. It was with a baby turtle, very small. I mean, it fit into the palm of my hand, barely, very tiny, my husband and I had rescued it, and we were on our way to taking it to a safe spot. It was on my hand, and I held it up to my face, and its neck was out, its little head, and it looked into my eyes, or I looked into its eyes, and it looked back at me. And I felt a connection so profound that it's been hard to put it into words until I learned there's something called eye-to-eye epiphany. And it's a visual encounter with an animal that can be life-changing. And I'm thinking in the in the context of your book, it strikes me that it was a place where a human umwelt and an animal umwelt came together in that moment. Yeah. And, and I still think about it.
4: Yeah, I think those experiences can be really magical. Like I've had them with, with other animals too. And I, I think what I would say there is, that's, you know, that that exists that I, we, we call it an eye to eye epiphany because humans are, are often so visual. But um, you know, millions of us are going around without sight uh, and, and with um, you know doing perfectly well without it. And there are loads of other senses, too, with which we can find connection with other animals through. Um, so there's a there's a moment in the book where um, I meet a manatee. Um, manatees have extraordinarily sensitive um, lips. Um, they use their lips to explore the world around them in uh, a, a technique called oripulation, which is like manipulation, but with the mouth. And, you know, I stop my stick my hand in the water in front of this manatee, and it auripulates my hand. You know, it's exploring it with this sort of whiskered lip. And I, I was standing there thinking, like, there is something beautiful about this. Like, here is an animal that lives in in this world of touch, and here is its primary tactile organ, its lip, touching my primary tactile organ, my hand. Um, and the, I, I did feel like a moment of profound connection there. You know, I, I wondered what I felt like to him. Um, uh, yeah, and... I think my hope for an immense world is that it sparks these moments of connection. Um, you know, even with creatures that are so very different to us. Um, you know, like the turtle that you rescued or the spider that was that I that I saw on holiday. Um, I think that, as we've said, those moments of connection can spark a greater desire to um, know more about and to protect the world around us
1: so not just inspiring the connection but also maybe asking the question that you asked what is the world like for him or her what's the yeah. world like for that bird what is the world like for that hummingbird what is the world like for that even that mosquito or that tick just take a moment and 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 think about to put yourself in the, not the shoes but in the world of other animals what is it like for them well finally ed uh is your dog typo is he there Right now, um,
4: he's he's several rooms away. Uh, we we like to keep him uh, at a distance while I'm doing these recordings because uh, he's he's lovely but also unpredictable.
1: <laughs> he could probably say the same for humans. Um, <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I'm wondering what it's like for him to try to imagine your world, and if he could, what do you think he would make of it?
4: You know, I don't know. Um, I know that. Um, my, you know, like most dogs, he's um, very empathetic, but I'm not sure he's sitting there thinking like what is what is that what is the what are like my parents you know experiencing what are they seeing and sniffing um this i i've made this argument in the book that i think this ability to step into other other umwelten is probably a uniquely human skill now a lot of people have made very similar claims about this ability or that ability being uniquely human i i make those claims with some degree of trepidation but You know, I think it's a reasonable claim because if you just look at people, um, we can do this, but it doesn't come naturally. You know, it it arose through millennia of scholarship, um, a huge amount of research, and you know the, the reason the book exists the reason i felt i needed to write it was that a, a lot of people just don't don't do this right it's not a natural thing for people to do you you have to make the effort you have to want to you you have to know that there is something to know um i'm dubious that other animals have this um and you know i i think if in that thought experiment that we started this interview with. You know, I don't think the elephant is, sit, is sitting in the room thinking, you know, what is the spider feeling in its wear? But I think the spider is thinking what is the rattlesnake sensing through those pits on its face? Um, I think if that's true, if this is a uniquely human skill, then it, it feels like a gift. You know, it feels like um, you, you talked about the James Webb Space Telescope, right? Like what a profound and wonderful thing it is to be able to see across the universe so back to the to the you know the history throughout the span of of creation um i feel that it's an equivalent gift to understand the sensory worlds of other animals you know and that that moments of equal magic and beauty open up before us when when we tap into that so yeah i I think that um I think in many ways, this book is, is a tribute to that gift and a call for people to recognize and cherish it.
1: Ed Young, it was just so lovely to talk to you. Thank you for being with us.
4: Oh, thanks so much for having me. This was great.
3: Ed Young is a science writer for The Atlantic, where his coverage of the pandemic earned him a Pulitzer Prize in explanatory journalism. We talked with him about his book, An Immense World how animal senses reveal the hidden realms around us.
1: So the big picture here, Seth, in terms of how other animals perceive their world, what is your big picture takeaway?
3: Well, maybe it's not so surprising that they have abilities that we don't have. I mean, you know, a lot of animals can run faster, see things we can't see, and so forth. But they have the abilities that they need, that evolution has ensured that they have. And it's uh, interesting to find out what those abilities are. Also to try and get behind why they have
1: them. And also the exercise of stepping out of our human-centric umwelt and thinking about the lives of the other creatures that share this planet with us is an important and interesting exercise.
3: Very interesting. I, I was particularly struck when Ed Young talked about the fact that uh, birds have some sort of compasses built into their brains so they can sense Earth's magnetic field. And they migrate thousands, even tens of thousands of miles on that basis. It's incredible. Uh, and, you know, for a long time, I mean, that's been debated. How is it that birds find their way to wherever they're going? And it seems that they can do something that you and I cannot do without instruments.
1: This show would not be possible without the finely-tuned senses of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producers Shannon Rose Geary and Brian Edwards. I am the executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley.
3: Thanks also to financial support from NASA. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization whose efforts include sensing the presence of life on other worlds. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters.
1: The original music in the show was created by Dewey DeLay and June Miyaki. This episode of Big Picture Science, a conversation with science writer, Ed Young, about how animals perceive their world is called Coming to Our Animal Senses.
3: Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch Podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech,